and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am streaming live from the Team Needham Abode podcast studio, and I am super excited to introduce Dr. Richard Eggleston today. I actually got the pleasure of talking to him a few weeks ago. I was introduced to him by a good friend of mine, Dr. Renata Moon, who has been in the news lately a lot also, um, and I was actually... Um, honored and privileged to actually meet him in person Saturday, and and he did speak at our medical freedom event, and and did a wonderful job of telling his story. He has practiced medicine for over fifty years. Um, his license is in a retired state, um, and a few years ago during COVID, he wrote some op-ed pieces in the Lewiston newspaper and the medical board of Washington got him in some trouble and now he's fighting for his license. So Dr. Eggleston, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me, Sean. I appreciate this very much. Yeah. I love hearing your story. I'd love to hear it again. So tell, tell us about your story of when you started practicing medicine and then how, how you're here today. Okay, well, I graduated from the University of Kansas Medical School in 1967. I uh, interned with the Army at Letterman General Hospital in San Francisco from 67 to 68. And then I, I uh, went into flight surgery training and uh, as a flight surgeon. I was in Alabama, and then we were stationed in Europe in Verona, Italy, and then up in Heidelberg, Germany. When I was in Verona, I was the flight surgeon for the station there. And uh, this, it was during that time, as I mentioned to you, that I got my first uh, really eye-opener of how supposedly competent people with knowledge and can make stupid mistakes and even deadly mistakes. And this first one was when the uh, I was supposed to be on a flight to go from Verona to Milan, Italy, to pick up the new two-star commanding general for the, what's called the Southern European Task Force. Um, and... Uh, the executive officer uh, and uh, operations officer were on the flight, but I didn't get on it because I wasn't notified of it, So, which is fortunate. So they fly and pick up the general, and uh, instead of taking off safely, they crash and kill the, the general and the, uh, and the executive officer. And it was because they were pointed at the short end of the runway. With all the experience of both of these flight, uh, these uh, pilots had during NAMA, probably the total of around ten or 12,000 flights, hours. They they didn't even check the compass on their dash of the airplane to tell what direction they were going. So they ended up killing two people and the executive officer got hepatitis C out of this and, uh, and other things. So uh, that was my really first eye opener that people supposedly uh, knowledgeable didn't do things right. And then I went to a, when I was in practice, which started in 1974 in Spokane as an ophthalmologist, I had trained, uh, took my ophthalmology residency back at the University of Kansas. So uh, in uh, about 1997 or so, I went to a meeting in Las Vegas that was um, a alternative medicine. It was by the organization called American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. And uh, all the people that were presenting were MDs and PhDs from major universities. And uh, I, I, like sometimes you go to meetings, you plan to go for a couple hours and and then dodge out. So uh, actually, at that time, at that meeting, I spent four straight days from seven in the morning to seven at night listening to 
to information that I had never read, never heard about in medicine. And I said, holy smokey, this has got to change my life, which it did. It's so Betty and I both got started on bioidentical hormones and many other things. And that's one. That's when I learned one of the very, at that first meeting, how important vitamin D was. And it's now just in the past few years, uh, docs are beginning to understand that this is a really important thing. So we've been on high dose of that for 25 years or so, which has been a big help for us. So uh, uh, during the time I was in Spokane, I was the uh, chief of staff at the hospital in the Valley and uh, also on the American or the Washington Academy of Ophthalmology as secretary treasurer for two or three terms. And also um, uh, later on, uh, after I moved to Clarkson, Washington, I was also still on the trustees of the, of the Washington Academy of Ophthalmology and also on the Washington Medical Quality Assurance Commission, which is what it was called then. Now it's called the Medical Commission. And uh, I had two, two terms, uh, two three-year terms. And the commission at that time was not political. They were doing what they're supposed to do, evaluate complaints by patients who I think have a right to complain and, and get some kind of result. And at the time, uh, they were, like I said, not political, and they were doing the job. And so uh, I retired about uh, somewhere around 2010, 2012. <laughs> These years kind of flow by after you retired. And I was actually, uh, you know, just... Uh, kind of not doing very much. And then uh, in uh, the fall of, of uh, 2020, the uh, local paper, the Lewiston Tribune, uh, had put out a request for uh, conservative writers. And uh, I, I had always read, I always kept up on medical and political things. And it was very interesting to me to do that. And on a Friday night before this uh, announcement came out, I was said at my, at my chair reading, and I thought I had the thought. I said, God, I, you know, I love to read and know this stuff, but I think you want me to do something with it. And so two days later was the announcement in the paper that they were looking for conservative writers. And I had written many uh, letters to the editor and actually paid for a piece about uh, the 2016 election. And so they took me on and uh, uh, to write. And since uh, January of 21, I've written about 38 articles, including the one uh, published on October 1st uh, yesterday. So uh, <clears throat> the second article I... Uh, I took on uh, the whole COVID thing because I'd been reading and understanding how, how wrong this was. And uh, the, a bunch of the local docs, eight of them, as a matter of fact, wrote an op-ed to the paper saying how wrong I was. Five of these guys were retired. One of them uh, was actually my physician, and he uh, kicked me out of his practice for what I had written because he said I was not understanding the suffering the patients were doing and going through and how difficult this was, and I was giving misinformation out. Uh, as, as it's turned out, everything I've written about has been vindicated in, uh, over the year, past two or three years, and especially recently. Which was what? What did you specifically write about? Well, I talked about that I, uh, I was concerned about this COVID uh, virus. Uh, was it really a wild one or a, was this a manufactured one? And I, I started writing about uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and all the other things that could be done to keep you healthy and keep you, uh, get you out of the out of the problem of having the infection. <clears throat> and uh, they, uh, like I said, didn't like that. And then a uh, 
a person from a surrounding town who I'd never met. He was not my patient, nothing. Uh, he, he wrote a letter to the commission saying I was saying bad things and going to kill people and they were going to die and all that. As it turned out, I find that he's written three letters to him, but that was the first one. And, uh, so they started a investigation, which as I said, the commission should do, uh, just for make sure patients are getting proper care. But this was a political, uh, event that they, uh, went, went after me for. And, uh, so they, they actually filed charges against me in August of 2022. Uh, and that started the process. And I, I have to say that I actually expected and actually welcomed having this commission uh, because there was no information getting out that I that I thought people were entitled to uh, for their health and just for the freedom of information that's, that we're supposed to have. So uh, it's uh, got to the point that uh, about uh, in August, um, we had a, uh, a, an appeals court in Spokane uh, grant a, a temporary restraining order against the commission th so that they couldn't go after me any further. And then uh, uh, last week, the second uh, or the appeal court in Spokane re re uh, restated that again. Uh, and uh, the commission has a few, uh, about another three weeks or so to respond to it. But uh, that still enjoins them from doing anything against me. Uh, and they need to stress that uh, my uh, interaction with this patient was there was no interaction with this person who who filed the complaint, and so this is strictly a First Amendment issue. And uh, uh, my attorney, who's with uh, well, one of my attorneys, my local one, and and uh, Todd Richardson and. Rick Jaffe, who's with Children's Health Defense, uh, Rick said, I've been looking for a pure case like this my entire career to have a First Amendment without any patient involvement or treatment or anything. So he's very excited to be working on this. And uh, there is, uh, I don't know if he thinks uh, or hopeful for it or not, but he's willing to take this to the Supreme Court of the United States if necessary, because this is, again, just a pure free speech issue. So uh, we won't know the, whether the entire appeals court is going to grant this permanent injunction, but we're hopeful and that that will happen, but it could be a few months yet before that's decided. But regardless, we're still going to fight for the First Amendment right to speak and for a, a doctor to be able to tell his patients what he thinks is the best for him instead of having to do a cookbook, uh, recipe, treatment, or not even be able to talk to the patient about what is uh, beneficial for him and what he should have know and has the right to know. As one of the big things about the Nuremberg trial was that patients uh, that came out of it was that patients have many, uh, many points to, that have to be uh, fulfilled before experiments can be done on them. And uh, none of this was done in the COVID uh, uh, trial so far. And uh, as we know, many of these uh, or these um vaccines were approved with uh, no real long-term study and uh, and not the typical way that any vaccines have been approved before. So uh, that's where we're at with uh, the medical commission now. We're waiting uh, for the, the time to expire. I'm, I'm thinking that there's a reasonable chance that they're not going to want to take this case any further because they don't want to have the president that they have been defeated uh, on a permanent basis. And they hopefully, I, I think they're thinking that this uh, First Amendment issue will go away because they don't want to have that uh, uh, 
come up either. So as we all know, the medical or the Federation of State Medical Boards in 21 put out a statement saying uh, you should go after docs who don't uh, state everything uh, that we once stated about COVID and uh, ivermectin and everything. So uh, this is uh, where we're at. And, and Rick, by the way, said that uh, my case is the only one in the United States that's a pure, pure First Amendment right case. And actually, these, uh, these uh, injunctions... Uh, against the commissioner, the, f the first that he's aware of in the United States also being successful. So we, uh, we're, we're happy to fight this battle. It's uh, something that, uh, as I mentioned the other day, uh, as Ronald Reagan said, you know, freedom's not free. It's got to be fought for by each generation to be passed to the next and for them to pass it on too. And so I uh, write these articles, not only because I like to, but for my children, grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren, for patients so that they get the right to hear information they should and that uh, doctors can uh, give the information that they're, they should and, and are supposed to give the patients. And so there's, uh, you know, in our history to maintain freedom, uh, people have been shot at and killed. Only thing we're required right now is to use our voice and words and have some and have some grit to, to, to fight this thing through. Yeah, I, I love it, and thank you, Doctor Eggleston, for standing up. We need more physicians like you. Now, I got to ask. You said the commission filed charges against you. What charges? What did they actually charge you with? Well, there was about five or six, uh, seven things. I actually don't remember them all, but one of them that I was given disinformation that I was saying uh, that COVID or that ivermectin was good and that the vaccines had problems. And uh, I was uh, actually, I was uh, exhibiting moral turpitude by stating these things. Uh, and, uh, but that, the, every everything that I've written about has been vindicated, like, like I just mentioned earlier. Yeah, right. I mean, the, the the truth eventually comes out, I, and and we just got to stop these medical boards from from doing things like this. And and I've heard that Washington is one of the worst ones. I know at the Medical Freedom Conference, which you were at Saturday, you know there was a group of Washington physicians that's also suing um, the the medical commission, and. You know, between four physicians, there were 22 complaints filed against their license. I have to ask you, of all the 50 years you practice in medicine, how many complaints did you get against your license? Uh, in, I, I practiced in Idaho, too, because it's a border state. And about 20 or five years ago, uh, there was an Idaho complaint uh, from a patient that had uh, uh angle closure type glaucoma and uh so he filed this with the with the board there and we had a meeting and there nothing that came out of it yeah so in 50 so, years of practicing medicine you had one complaint and there was not a lot came out of it and now you have to fight for your life yeah now you're mm -hmm. having to fight for your license for 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 writing a letter to the yeah. to, to in the paper well, I'm not really, uh, in, a, in a true sense, fighting for my license. I'm an active retired status, which I kept active so that in case there was some kind of a national or state emergency that medical people were needed, I could uh, jump right in and have to go through the reinstatement process. But it's actually turned out to be beneficial 
uh, because of, uh, of this case that I did keep it because if I had been retired, the commission would not have gone against me at all because they would have had no basis to. But they thought that since I was uh, I still had an active status, that this would be grounds for them to go against me. Uh, and uh, they wanted me to agree to that I was uh, that I had made some infractions and they would drop the matter. Well, I said, that's not going to happen because this is a First Amendment issue. This isn't whether I practice medicine right or wrong. This Good is whether. This is whether I have the right to speak, uh, especially not about a particular patient and no patient treatment involved. And uh, so that's that's one of the reasons Rick is so excited about this. And and the whole, I think, CHD, the Children's Health Defense, uh, is interested. And Robert Kennedy himself is aware of this case, as he mentioned it on a national interview, that there was this case in Washington State, this Dr. Eggleston, who's fighting the commission. So it worked out good that I had kept my license active, or otherwise none of this would have been able to get out. Well, it just brings up another point, is that, you know, like you said, if, if you didn't have a license... They, they couldn't do anything, so they couldn't control you. But now, since you have a license, they try to censor you. And it just is proof, in my opinion, that medical boards are using licenses as they're weaponizing licensing. You know, it's like, well, you don't do what we say. We're going to take your license, which essentially takes your livelihood. And Dr. Scott Jensen out of Minnesota, we've interviewed him a couple times. I've met him a couple times. He mentioned that early on in the government-created pandemic that, um, you know, states were using, were weaponizing licenses. And because he he had no complaints of thir- after practicing medicine for 30 years, he had no complaints against his license. Then all of a sudden, and, you know, when the, the COVID pandemic happens, he's got five complaints he's got to fight for his license, which, and they were like you, like yours, they were all political. They were... None of them were from patients. They were actually from other doctors um, that didn't like what he was saying. And, you know, then he had to fight for it. And that's just, you know, and, and the thing is, is what I appreciate about what you're doing is that you're not just like you said, you know, you're, 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 you're not practicing medicine really anymore. I mean, and this is not your livelihood, right? So Correct. that's not what you're fighting for. You're right. fighting for people like me that has a pharmacy license. You're fighting for other doctors that have licenses and you're fighting for their patients. Because if we don't stop these boards, whether they're medical boards, nursing boards, or pharmacy boards, which all three of those professions have been hit in, during the pandemic for, for um, spreading misinformation, um, we will just be wars of the state and the state will just tell us how to take care of patients. And that is not what's good for patients. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. This, uh, the, uh, Federation board, uh, they, as I mentioned earlier, put out this statement, that this is what they want the boards to do. And there's like, besides the states, there's like a total of 70 entities that they have, uh, that they have some, uh, have control over in the, on the board certification. So, uh, or state boards. And uh, so like many of the hospitals, uh, uh, they actually receive payments from the uh, from various government agencies. I believe it's the CDC and NIH, as far as I know, uh, to promote only 
the COVID vaccine and the and the line that's being put out about uh, the infection. And so uh, I know there's a physician, and he's been interviewed many times, uh, Dr. Thorpe, who uh, lost his standing at uh, St. Louis Hospital and was told specifically if they uh, if he wasn't shut up and he didn't start towing the line, they would they would uh, uh, suspend him. And it was because the hospital would lose funds if they didn't enforce that kind of thing. And so that's one of the reasons that uh, remdesivir and ventilators were used because hospitals were receiving money the whole way through this problem when a patient would come in. Uh, but they also had to tow the line that this was the way that people should be treated. And if they didn't, they would lose funding. And I think uh, there's the probability, I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure that even the Federation of State Medical Boards has, uh, has funding that uh, they lose if they don't do it. I think the uh, chairman of the uh, the one in New England, I think it's uh, Vermont or New Hampshire, is one of the members on that board who's also taken away or trying to take away the license of a physician there, of a Merrill Nass. Uh, so they they are doing a political hit like uh, like uh, is happening throughout the the, the country, and uh, the the government is as we all know has been able to work with the social media groups to prevent. Uh, information from getting out and taking it off and and uh, not allowing it to be on. You know, there was a statement from uh, the Mayo Clinic that they were going to allow ivermectin use in certain things or recommended it could be used. Well, that uh, that blog was taken off after a few days because why would they why would they take it off? They don't want that information out that it's being accepted. And as one of the speakers uh, at, the, at the conference talked about how successful ivermectin is, everybody knows that it's been used over four billion times with with minimal, if any, real side effects from it, and it costs four or five cents, or maybe even a penny to make versus the this uh, other new new prescription or a, a drug for uh, that's similar ivermectin that costs four or five hundred bucks. So you can see where all the money is. Yeah, as usual, just follow the money. Now, speaking of that, do you remember or do you know the national, what is it, National Federation of Medical Boards? State boards. Or state uh, state boards. boards. Okay. Yeah. Do you? Or maybe Pete, it is medical boards, but National Federation. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I think we get the gist. Pete Serrano was talking about that, um, you know, the attorney that's fighting for some um, right. other doctors and, you know, at right. the Medical Freedom Conference, he was talking about um, that there's, the funding that they get is from some interesting sources. Do you remember what where he said those funding where that where they were getting funded from? Uh, I did. I did not hear his speech, but I assume this uh, and know that there's been many other fundings from like the Gates Foundation, Soros groups, and things like that. Uh, and again, it's just a way to control population and um, uh, to make us toe the line. This is more of a totalitarian type state. Uh, because instead of a dictator in a way, because totalitarianism, really, you're afraid to say anything uh, or to do anything uh, because, you know, you'll be reported or somebody will hear about it and uh, versus, you know, you being shot and everything if you're in the dictator type thing. But here in a totalitarian, I think there is a difference that you, you just are afraid to say anything. Well, and, you know, when you look at history, um, eventually totalitarian governments end up being dictatorships. 
Right. And that's when, and that's when people start getting murdered. And I know that people think you're crazy when you say things like that, but you know, just look at history and, you know, we were shared over the weekend. I found out an interesting statistic, you know, you talked about Nuremberg and uh, you know, one of the things about Nuremberg was there were a lot of medical experiments going on with, um, patients and informed right. consent was not being done. And right. that's, you know, that's one of the things that we talk about when we believe in medical freedom is informed consent. It, it's a decision that the patient has to make, but you need to give them, you know, good informed consent, and good information at the Nuremberg trials. There were 27 people executed and seven of them were physicians. Right. Right, and, and I, I, I had not, I did not know that. And Dr. Kelly Victory, I think, right. was the one that that um, mentioned that over the weekend, and I was just blown away. Yeah. Um, which it's just hard to believe that physicians would go along with the narrative, and totalitarian governments create so much fear in people that that's what happens. But remember, in Nuremberg, just following orders didn't work. All right. Well, that's what I'm afraid a lot of docs and hospitals are going to find out uh, with their a lot of suits that are coming against them. And um, I'm aware of one going against the hospital in Phoenix because they would not uh, uh, they would not allow even following a court order the patient to receive uh, ivermectin, and uh, the family is suing that hospital because of that. It's true. And uh, so, yeah, this uh, this is going to take a lot of people to become aware. And I think there is a great awakening of what's going on. I hear so many patients or people that talk to me and former patients saying, you know, I'm so glad you write this stuff. As a matter of fact, let me divert a minute. When I first started writing these articles, I got uh, I got emails from doctors in the U.S., Canada, Britain, Brazil, New Zealand, Australia, saying they wish that they could write these kind of things and say these kind of things and for me to keep on writing. And from those same countries and at, at least half the states, I got emails from uh, people saying we're, we're, we just can't find any information. Thanks for putting this out. And uh, so I... I put out the, all the sources that I got my information from so that they could look for, the, for themselves and find it. But, you know, going back to the docs uh, doing and uh, being not strong in a way, uh, I'm not against or don't feel uh, and uh, animosity towards all of the docs because some of them have a, a problem with their livelihood stuff. But the bigger issue, I think, is that if they are debarred or de-licensed and can't see patients, what happens to all those patients? All of a sudden, they're going to be shifted onto the medical system, which is strained already. So uh, I think as long as they, uh, you know, don't actively promote all this uh, stuff and and follow the line, I, I don't have uh, you know any bad feelings towards them. It's the ones that continually say, you know, you got to do this, follow the science when they when the science is hidden from you when they when they uh, won't re reveal all the information from these trials. Uh, you know, the Pfizer wanted the CDC to bury the evidence for 75 years. Now, why would that be necessary to not? Right. <laughs> you know, there's obviously, yeah. obviously right. something wrong. And all these, uh, all these uh, kids, get these babies getting these vaccines, these, uh, these uh, COVID vaccine shots. I mean, there's no need, as we heard at the meeting, that a 0.003% of children who contract this get any kind of serial uh, Ill illness. And if, so if, if we have all the data, there's even some thought like Dr. Renata Moon says, 
we don't really know if any children died of primary COVID. Right. We really don't know. It, it's hard to trust the data. Right. Well, you can't trust data at all, as a matter of fact. No. And it's, it, was, it was she or Dr. Victory that talked about how the medical journals are so corrupted now. And and the previous editor of the uh, of the British Journal and the, uh, and the Lancet and actually even the JMA, they have all commented about how poor the studies are. And most of them are, uh, have a good portion of fraudulent in them. And they have to retract so many articles, you know, more than 10 or 20 or 30 percent of them have to be retracted for false information. And so if the medical journals are, are allowing this stuff to be put out because they're getting money from the pharmaceuticals who support them all, you know, we can't really believe anything that's being said. You're, you have to find a, a good doctor who you know is is honest, who has the moral integrity to tell you the truth and not just do things for, for money or so. So, uh, you know, medicine is in a big quandary, and part of it is because, as I wrote in one of my articles, the corporatization of uh, medicine. Yeah. Uh, and if you uh, belong to a group, uh, and it's like... Uh, one of the speakers I was talking about, or Dr. Edgerly, uh, and you kind of have to follow what they say, or you know, you uh, you can be kicked out of the system. Well, in some ways, that's probably a better idea. As he has shown, that you can uh, you can prof or you can do very well being out of the system without any controls put on you, and the patients are happier and and everything. So. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. Well, Dr. Eggleton, you, you truly are a hero. You may not realize this, but you truly are a hero. And doctors like you, I don't think, I, sometimes you don't realize it. And you, you saw the doctors that were in the room um, Saturday at our Medical Freedom Northwest Conference um, fighting for just what you're fighting for. This has implications for decades. Right. I mean, it really does. So, you know, you are going to create a legacy um, because not very many physicians, if any I've ever heard of, actually, have been able to fight for their constitutional right of freedom of speech. And you're doing that. And I so appreciate it. Well, thank you for the comments. And like I said, I don't think of myself as a hero. I feel that somebody's doing their job. And as I said earlier on, trying to protect my offspring, my great-grandchildren that are around now, because yeah. if they are if they are unable to get proper care or phony care, then their life is in danger. So there's many reasons that I outlined earlier that I've decided to take this uh, challenge on. And and actually, as it's not been a it's not been a, a, a stressful challenge or anything for me because I, I know we're doing right and what should be done, and so I have peace of mind. I love it. I love it, Doctor Eggleston. We're winding this podcast up, and I can't thank you enough for being on our show today. Um, I really appreciate it, and and thank you fighting for for freedom of speech for your patients, and you helped us realize our goal. And our goal of this podcast is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. And, you know, without a doctor being able to say information that they believe is fact, then we've got a big problem and patients can't take charge of their health. So yeah. thank you so much for being on today. Do I have another minute or you have to come back? Uh, I, have to, I have to give a kudos to John Stockton who spoke and it's because of him or actually me contacting him and him reading my initial stuff and making contacts with, uh, you know, that like Renata that then connect, contacted me with you and then him contacting me with CHD to get the attorney. So as he writes in his book, his autobiography, it's a, it's a concentric circles that enlarge and overlap and we influence each other and influence each other and, and enlarge the circles. So 
that we need to have for, for support. So That's exactly right. And thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. I appreciate this very much and hope it's helpful. Yeah, thank you so much. And listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you so much.